You're listening to TIP. Four years ago, I was sharing the room with another inmate that who knows what he was in for. And now I am talking about having passive income pay for a dream house. It's amazing. It's just amazing, the power of real estate. In this week's episode, I talk with Jason Peterson about how to start investing with nothing, why real estate has a low barrier to entry, what house hacking is and why it's one of the most powerful real estate strategies, how to leverage lines of credit and the equity in your properties to scale, what seller credits are and how to use them, and much, much more. Jason Peterson is a real estate investor from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who served what he calls a well-deserved eight-year sentence in prison. He used an FHA loan upon his release from prison to start his portfolio, which he has quickly scaled to five rental properties total today. Many, many people don't get started in real estate because of nearly an infinite number of excuses or limiting beliefs that they hold. But in today's episode, Jason shows you that you can build a successful portfolio, even starting with some of the toughest circumstances that there are. Jason clearly has the drive and mindset to achieve his goals, but anyone can develop those things. You just have to put in the work. As Nike says, you have to just do it. Someone actually just said to me recently, there's nothing to it but to do it. And I absolutely love that. I've probably said that a million times in just a month since I've heard it. There's nothing to it but to do it. I hope you guys all learn a thing or two or more from this episode. But most importantly, get motivated to take action and change your life. We're laying out the blueprint for you. You just have to follow it. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Jason Peterson. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Jason Peterson. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Your story and your background plays a big role in who you are today, even more so for you than some other guests that we've had on the show. So tell us a bit about your story and yourself. Yeah, I'm Jason Peterson. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I have a pretty unconventional background regarding my start in real estate. I grew up in a single mother home. We struggled for money. It was very hard for her to make ends meet. So I got used to living on bare minimums and watching her clip coupons. But as most young boys do when there's not much of strong figure in the household, I got into some trouble. I tried to correct my path and I joined the Marine Corps. However, I didn't completely clean up my behavior. I came home on a 96-hour leave and got into some more serious trouble, which sent me to prison for eight years. So upon being released, I had a lot of people that supported me along the way. They knew that at my core, I was a good person. I just made 
some very, very bad mistakes that I take full accountability and responsibility for. And I had to prove to everybody that believed in me that I would make a change for the better. And in doing so, I got onto the path of self-development and pretty much anything that would propel my life into a positive state of well-being. And in that path, I found real estate. I have a cousin that's very successful here in my hometown area, and he mentored me. And I started with a house hack. I've been rolling the snowball along ever since. So I can't stress how important that house hack was in the path I've chosen. When I first got started in real estate, I didn't have a lot of money, but I had a good job. I had good credit. And generally speaking, I had a pretty good life situation, yet I still didn't think that I could become a real estate investor. You became a real estate investor from a much, much worse circumstance than I did. So how did you know that you could do it? And why real estate specifically? I didn't really know that I could do it. I kind of am a fearless type guy where I devote my focus onto learning something and I delve completely into it. And real estate was an area where it actually has a very low barrier to entry if you go about the right path. You know, as far as even the low down payment owner occupied loan. And that's what I used. You know, I had very little money and my credit score was non existent. So I started from zero. And within nine months from my release, I went from being charged a triple security deposit because when I first got released, the landlord I rented from, he saw my background and immediately thought, well, this guy might be trouble. So he charged me a triple security deposit. And then nine months later, I was actually collecting one. So I chose real estate because I think there's a path for everyone. And if you study anybody that has been successful in a short amount of time, I think real estate has been a major percentage of those people that have reached financial freedom in a short amount of time. You said that you didn't know that you could do it. Do you think having quote unquote nothing to lose might have played a factor in it? Definitely. I mean, you know, I'm a pretty simple guy. I mean, eight years in pretty bad conditions that keep in mind, I asked for that. That was the punishment that was due to me, and I accepted it fully. However, when you're around more comfortable situations, if I have a bathroom with a door on it, I'm happy. So the risk for me wasn't too grave because what's the worst that could happen? However, these risks and these fears are pretty much your mind making up excuses for you to not pull a trigger because these risks are very minimal, especially, I mean, my mortgage payment on this house hack was $100 less than what I was paying for my apartment that I rented from the triple security deposit landlord. So where's the risk there? Plus I have my tenant paying my mortgage. So it's a no brainer. What do you do, if anything specifically, to keep yourself from getting comfortable? I know you mentioned you're very happy with not having much and that makes sense given what you went through, but 
I feel like as humans, as people, after a period of time of having some creature comforts, you kind of get used to it and you get comfortable. So how are you making sure that you don't get comfortable at a higher standard? I seek out the stock, embrace the stock, as they say. I seek out discomfort because I think that in order to be the best human you can be, you should seek some discomfort and put yourself in uncomfortable situations so you can adapt and overcome. And then when times are good, I mean, everything's a breeze. So I embrace the suck in a lot of situations. You know, I do jujitsu. I have my ear messed up. I broke a rib. I sign myself up for struggle so I can enjoy the good times. But to tell you the truth, there really isn't much struggle as far as the real estate portion of my life. At first, there was a lot of fears to overcome. I'd get a text on my phone that would have the first and last name. So I knew it was a tenant. And immediately towards the start of my investing, when I had about one or two properties, I would get anxiety. You know, I'm human. I'm like, how am I going to deal with this? What if the furnace blew? What if the hot water tank is leaking all over the basement and I have water everywhere? But a lot of these fears that you manifest are unfounded. And at the end of the day, it's a phone call and it's a problem that you have to solve. And, you know, over these past short three years here, I don't get that anxiety anymore because I've dealt with these problems. It's not a big deal. Nobody's bleeding. Hopefully, there's a person you can call. And, you know, as much as I want to get in there and do the maintenance myself, I have to take a page out of your book. I call people and I think I've actually learned a lot from you and have it's opened up my eyes to how easy long distance investing could be because I kind of do it already. I have two rentals that are 20 miles south of Milwaukee, which is not a big deal. I can get there in 30 minutes, but I mean, 30 minutes there, 30 minutes back, I still work my W-2. I mean, that's taken a good chunk of my time. So I've actually set up quite a nice infrastructure of contractors and people that I can call down in Racine, Wisconsin, that can handle this stuff for me. So, I mean, I could duplicate that a thousand miles away. I have systems set up and it's very, very nice. I had a friend and also a guest that was on the show recently, Travis, who said something similar. He'd have to drive 30 to 45 minutes to get to his Airbnb property just to like refill toilet paper and paper towels and these things that would take 10 minutes. And then he's done. And he's like, it just didn't seem to make sense to drive an hour, hour and a half round trip to do a five or 10 minute task. And I mean, that's the philosophy I take with whether it's my, I live in a house hack right now. We're having this conversation as I sit in the basement of one of my house hacks. And it's the same thing where next door, if the toilet breaks, I'm going to call somebody to fix it. And I have the same processes and procedures for my house hack as I do for my long distance rentals. And now I can continue to just scale and scale and scale and just do the same thing over and over. Absolutely. And I'm in my house hack as well. If you can see behind me, I'm in the wooden room here and I have nicer rentals than I live in. So this is kind of the embracing the suck. But like I said, I'm used to, I was in an eight by 10 foot cell. I don't need much. And this to me, 
I can't find a better situation that I'm blessed. I'm very blessed. And to have this and to have the financial freedom that comes with it. I mean, the mortgage payment that looms over your head stops so many people from taking other risks and maybe some other personal development things in their life. For me, if for some reason the company I work my W 2 for got sold to an overseas company and we all got liquidated, I would be fine. I mean, I still have the roof over my head. I can regroup, figure out what my next endeavor is. It's so much freedom. The house hack is so underutilized, and I wish more people would know about it. It's funny that you mentioned your rentals are nicer than where you live because I'm in the exact same situation. The, all of my rentals are significantly nicer than the unit that I live in for my house hack. And the most recent property that I bought as a rental, it's really, really nice. It's like a three or four bedroom single family house with a garage and a nice yard and everything. And I'm like, this is so much nicer than where I live. And my brother just the other day was giving me a hard time because he's not an investor. He doesn't have the same mindset that you and I have. And he was giving me a hard time. You know, He's like, oh, you're a big baller. Why don't you go buy like a really fancy house? And I'm like, because I don't need that right now. I was like, I want to keep house hacking because I'm trying to buy another house hack right now. He's like, well, don't you want to own a single family? And I'm like, yeah, I do. I own four single family houses already, but they're, they're, <laughs> they're just rentals. You know, I don't need to live in one for now. I want to keep house hacking. And in five years, when I have 10 or 12 units just from house hacking, you'll see the power of what I did while I was in my 20s. Definitely. And I have a wife and a 15-month-old son. So but they're awesome. Well, obviously my son, he's not going to complain. He's got two toy rooms that he's taken over. So, but my wife, she is on board. I mean, she gets that. She sees the power. She knows the sacrifices we're making will lead to a, like you said, I mean, when we're ready, let me have my cash flow from all these rentals pay for the mortgage on a dream house. It's so crazy to think that four years ago, I was sharing the room with another inmate that who knows what he was in for. And now I am talking about having passive income pay for a dream house. It's amazing. It's just amazing, the power of real estate. I try to talk to everybody about it, but after so many attempts at trying to sway their opinion, they just get sick of hearing about it. You got to have the mindset. I think Rich Dad Poor Dad was very influential into changing the wiring of your brain almost because you go from liabilities to assets and you never go back. I think too many people miss the long term or the back end part of a house hack. Like, yeah, when you're house hacking, it's not always great. I mean, you can have some really nice house hacks that are have an ADU in the back and you have a really nice situation, but most house hacks are not overly comfortable. But in a year or two, when you move out and that property provides a thousand to $1,200 in monthly cash flow for you that you could put towards your dream house. I mean, that is what house hacking is worth and why it's what it's for. It's not while you're there. It's not in the short term. It's in the long term. And even if you just leapfrog from one house hack to the next. Just be prepared to move. Don't accumulate too much stuff. I mean, I try to stick to that game plan. However, I have a pretty big extended family and a 15-month-old son that just had his first Christmas. So 
the material items are piling up. Hopefully I find one. You know, I'm at the point now where I'm going to pay a moving company. You know, the, the whole time freedom and outsourcing, that almost takes over where, how valuable is my time? Yeah, I'll pay a moving company to come get me out of here and I'll be on to my next one. The same thing happens for me when I, or when I want to start collecting material things, sometimes I'm like, don't do it. You're moving to another house hack in the next couple months. And then after that, you're probably going to move to another house hack in 12 to 15 months after that. Wait till you move into your forever house before you start accumulating all this stuff. Cause I hate moving and I'm probably to the point to here where I'll start hiring a moving company, but I still hate moving. I still have, I hate boxing it all up and just, I hate living in a cluttered house. So house hacking, that's an undiscovered or overlooked benefit, I think, of house hacking. I mean, it's a small price to pay. Even if you do it yourself, I mean, what does it take a weekend? I'm up here in Milwaukee, the beer capital of the world. I don't drink myself. However, I got some buddies that, you know, I get a couple of cases of beer. I'm sure they would move me out of here in a heartbeat. So you just make it happen. It's part of embracing the suck, right? Yes, exactly. My back has been not as forgiving when I embrace the stock and do these crazy burpee challenges and stuff like that. I'm getting a little older, but uh, I'll pay buddies with beer to move my stuff. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, Your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Rob's Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, 
savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Going back to what you mentioned about how you had to pay for a triple security deposit. Now that you're a landlord yourself and, and you have tenants, how do you look at that? I'm sure when you were coming out and you had to pay it, I'm sure you were not like overly thrilled to have to do it. But now from the lens of a landlord, do you view it differently? Do you understand kind of where he was coming from and how would you approach it? Yeah, I definitely understand where he's coming from. He took a risk in taking me on. And the funny part about that was I think he tried to dissuade me from renting from him with the triple security deposit. You know, he thought that, oh, well, this guy, he'll just turn away. You know, there's no way that he's got close to $3,000. He's willing to just hold in an escrow for the next year. However, I really wanted the place. It was in a nice, quiet neighborhood. And I said, okay, where do you want me to bring the security deposit? And he was kind of taken aback, like, oh, well, bring it to the office. So I brought it to the office and I actually established quite a conversational relationship with him. He's kind of a big landlord in the area. He's got a building company. I told him when I first started diving into real estate and just soaking up podcasts, I went there to make a payment and he actually took the payment from me. And I asked him, I said, hey, is there a chance I could take you out for lunch and ask how you did it? He wasn't too receptive to it. I think yeah, I might have just came at it at a bad time. I understand the situation, why he had to do that, because I've run a lot of people's backgrounds actually recently, you know, a couple months ago. And you have to be very, very fine-tuned with the tenant you pick. I'm one of the class of people that I'd rather have a vacancy over a bad tenant. Just because I want sleep well at night comfort where I don't have to worry that I made the wrong choice with the tenant. I like to sleep well at night. This kind of goes back to the Instagram meme where it's like, hey, it's the first of the month. Are you paying rent or are you collecting rent? And just to be in that collecting rent category is life-changing. It's too bad that he said no, but kudos to you for even asking and I mean, the fact that he was there collecting rent, maybe he tells me he doesn't have the best processes in place. Sounds like he's working in his business, not on his business. So who knows? You might even know more about running a successful real estate business than him. Maybe you're just a little earlier on in your journey, but definitely kudos to you for asking him because I mean, that's, that's how you network. That's how you make connections. And it didn't work out this time, but next time you do that, who knows? You might meet somebody that changes your life forever. And I think word of mouth has been my biggest asset in real estate in general. I mean, I have the best lender you could ask for. I have the best realtor you could ask for. I've bought two properties off market that are just great cash flow monsters for me. And I mean, this was during the appreciation craze of the pandemic where he probably could have listed it and got quite a bit more than what I paid for it. But you build a rapport and a relationship with these people. And I told them there's a small roof repair that I had to address as soon as I took ownership. And he didn't want to let go of the property. I mean, he's an old school, old time Polish immigrant landlord. 
that didn't want to let go. So he actually agreed to meet me and show me how to repair this rubber roof porch and on the thing. And it was great. It's great to learn from him. I owe him a cup of coffee. So if he's listening to this, I'll be paying that forward very soon. I'm very thankful for that. Speaking of mentors, you mentioned that your cousin has played a big role for you. How did you get started with your cousin as a mentor? Did he approach you or did you have to approach him? How did that kind of get started? So shortly after my release, I had an uncle that passed away. So at his memorial, my cousin was there. And my cousin was kind of a legend in our family because he was retired by 40 and he had been a master's in engineering, had a very high paying engineering job. And our family is very traditional, hardworking, stay at the company and get a pension, that kind of old school mentality. So to hear about him retiring and all the success he had, he was like a legend. So when I saw him at this memorial, we started feeling each other out. And a common misconception of somebody that's done time in prison is that they might be, you know, sometimes they say it's college for criminals. And that's not always the case. I mean, and I'd like to be a voice for the people that go to prison and actually turn their life around and use that time to develop themselves into honest citizens. So there was a feeling out process between my cousin and myself, whether my head was screwed on straight and we kind of just chit chat, family friendly chit chat and came up that, Hey, I'm interested in what you did. I mean, I think it's remarkable. Can you, can you teach me more about it? And he said, yeah, well, depends. I have an assignment for you. I'm going to give you a copy of rich dad, poor dad. I have it out in my truck read it, tell me what you think. He said that he's done this with nine out of 10 people he tries this with that approach him and claim that they want to learn what he does. He said nine out of 10 won't even read the book. I mean, that's a challenge for them. So I call him about Rich Dad Poor Dad's a pretty quick read. So you know, about two days later, I called him and I said, man, that book, what is that? It's like magic. It, it changed my mind. I'm so scared to spend money on anything now. And he said, okay, I'm going to meet you at a, a sub shop and I'm going to break down some numbers for you and I'm going to tell you what to look out for. So he guided me. I mean, he really coached me through. He walked this house hack property with me, told me the things that I might need to call attention to. And he helped me write the offer. It was a for sale by owner property. So he helped me write the offer up. And from then, he would answer calls from time to time. But most of the time, he kind of clipped my wings and let me fly and just pointed me towards the right resources to find these answers. And I mean, the world we live in for real estate investing or any type of investing or self-development I mean, we're in the information age. I don't think there's been a better time in history where if you want to learn something to have a positive benefit on your life, I mean, you need to get rid of all the distractions. You could spend six hours on Instagram wasting your time scrolling, or you could design it to learn 
and follow informational Instagram pages. I learned a lot from Instagram. There's a lot of value to be had on Instagram. And I think that people take it for granted and lack the focus. But yeah, he clipped my wings and pointed me to the right, you know, informational areas. And I'm very, very lucky and fortunate that he opened my mind to this world and showed me it was possible. Even for someone like me that had zero credit and very little money, he showed me, hey, there's an avenue you can take. You know, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to save your money. You're going to be told no a lot of times. And over time, he was right. And that avenue paid off. And here I am today. Were you a reader before he handed you Rich Dad Poor Dad? Or was that a bit of a, like, a challenge for you to even get into that? I was not a reader in the sense of business books. I read a lot of self-development, like 48 Laws of Power kind of psychology books. But as far as business books, I was never really focused enough to... I think it basically boiled down to the fact that I didn't think that the content I was reading in those books would be applicable to me. However, once I realized that I didn't have these limitations, I mean, now the sky's the limit. I mean, I looked into buying a, a franchise. There are so many avenues to me that I put these self-limiting you know, limitations on myself and it really just is, boils down to taking the time to learn. And I think this is a book that kind of goes under the radar and I think it needs a little more attention is Scott Trench's Set for Life. Because that one was very influential. And even if you just flip the book open and you get to the pie chart onto what most Americans spend the majority of their money on, housing and transportation. And if you can knock that down to minimal cost, the amount of money you can save to invest is just magnified. What did your cousin's portfolio look like roughly when he took you under his wing? Did you know what he had done and that it was real estate and kind of what he owned? Or was it kind of a, you just knew he was successful and you wanted to follow him? I didn't know the massive scale of it. I don't think anyone in our family did. He's a pretty humble guy. So he didn't really want to boast. He didn't want to come about it with an ego. But at the time he had 101 doors in the Milwaukee area that he self-manages. I mean, he's a busy guy. He gets down and dirty when he needs to. And just the massive scale of 101 properties. And, you know, as our relationship grew and he knew that there'd be no judgment as far as, you know, the massive amount of wealth he was making, he started to tell me basically, okay, one door, I make $400 on this certain property. But when you magnify it on a linear rate and the snowball keeps moving and moving and moving while one door at 400 extra a month isn't that impressive. When you start scaling that up and now you have 10 doors, you just replaced your W-2 income. And it amazed me that this was even in the realm of possibility for me. I mean, a hundred doors sounds like a lot, but that's $40,000 that's $40, a month at $400 a door. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And even 10 doors, like you said, 400 at 10 doors is 4,000. I mean, that still is, is replacing a lot of people's W-2 income. Yeah, replaces mine. And then I have properties that make 
well over 400 a month. I have two Section 8 tenants right now. I have a single family house and it's Section 8. I had a lot of good luck with Section 8 and I cash flow pretty well. So if you do the math on, say, 700 a door, now you've just cut that time in half to replace your income. So you might only need five properties. It's amazing. I know one of the things your cousin taught you is the rule of 70. What is that rule? Just the, the amount of time it's going to take to get your investment. He taught me more or less cash on cash return and how important the cash on cash return is. See, I don't use the rule of 70 or the rule of 72 as much as I should. I was going to say, I knew it as the rule of 72. Yeah, the rule of 72. Yeah, he had the rule of 70 as well. It's somewhat the same. The 1% rule is a foundation for me. I think that the market and what's going on recently is, yeah, I'll, I'll make some exceptions. The 1% gross rents, you shouldn't pay more. So, you know, if gross rents are 1600 a month for, say, a duplex, you shouldn't pay more than 160K for it. I abided by that for quite a while. I mean, I have a realtor that she's pretty in tune with that. She knows what I'm looking for. She knows that it's going to have to cash flow for me. But the cash on cash return is a good metric for me, depending on if it's a house hack. I mean, you could get exorbitant numbers for your cash on cash return. It's amazing. Have you started to do any burring, even light burrs yet? Or are you still just mostly turnkey rentals? Besides this house hack here, it's mostly have been turnkey rentals. However, this house hack, I've done almost every avenue of pulling money out of this thing. That's pretty much how I kept the ball rolling. I mean, when I bought this house hack, I bought it with tons of equity. I got it for 97000 and the first appraisal that came through was for 165. So I bought it on an FHA. I used seller concessions to help with closing costs and the upfront mortgage insurance premium. You know, there's a lot of hidden costs to FHA that some people don't know about, but you can maneuver. I mean, there's, there's ways to minimize your cash on hand at closing. And I've done a cash out refinance. That was my first maneuver about nine months after I acquired the property. It was seasoned. I had an appraiser come through. I did a cash out refinance. I pulled out a tax-free check for approximately $40,000, rewrote the whole loan. So I bought a single family property with, it was, I think, 70,000. So I put a 20% down on that, still had 20,000 left. So I bought another duplex down in Racine with the other 20,000. Then I got to the point where I was kind of out of funding. So I took out a home equity line of credit on this house hack for another 40,000. And I have used that to buy two more properties since. So I will pay it down and then rinse and repeat. I mean, it's been so influential. I did do rehab in here, which helped the appraisal go up. I got it up to 190. So the more, you know, sweat equity, and I did it slow. My wife and I had a plywood countertop probably for almost two months in an old house. There were issues. There was a gravel driveway. I've recently just poured a foundation and put a whole driveway section in. You know, so much value to be had. And I don't think people realize that when you spend money on updates on your house, that 
you're not throwing it away because I've heard people say like, oh, I'm, you know, I got to replace all the windows in my house. I'm throwing away 20,000 on all the window updates, but that's equity that you're reinvesting. I mean, it's almost like if you reinvest the dividends in a stock, it just keeps paying itself forward. When you bought your first house hack, you mentioned that when you got out of prison that you didn't have an existing credit score. It just didn't exist. How did you build your credit so that you could buy that first house hack? And where was your credit at when you did buy it? My credit was non-existent upon my release. And in order to, you know, they give you a check to walk home with, which is like your prison earnings. And they just want to make sure that when you're released to the outside world, you at least have a little bit of money to get started with. And so I took that to a local credit union. And at the same time, I opened up a prepaid credit card with a $500 prepaid limit on it. And, you know, at the time I was, I was like a caveman. I, I wasn't smartphone, you know, handy. I didn't know how, how to work a smartphone. I didn't know online banking. So I did it the old school way. You know, I bought gas on my prepaid card and I went in there every Friday and saw the direct deposit for my W-2 check. And then I paid off the credit card. And over time, I slowly established a credit score and I was able to get it around 700 when I bought this house hack. But you don't even need it that high for FHA. I mean, FHA is very forgiving when it comes to credit score. So as soon as it was established and I was good to go. And like I said, I, I don't fear much because I don't have too much to lose. So I went all for it. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Dave Ramsey teaches people that credit scores don't matter. And he even says that people shouldn't even have a credit score. They should pay off all their debts and then do nothing with it. So that their score is non-existent, essentially like what happened with you. What are your thoughts on credit and how it impacts your life and investing in financial future? I couldn't have done any of this without credit. I mean, I think leverage is the greatest tool in real estate. If I had $50,000 worth of stock compared to $50,000 that I could invest into real estate, you can control so much more of an asset with the $50,000 invested in real estate. The leverage and the credit is what separates the ultra rich from the people that are just getting by the right type of credit that is i mean consumer debt is something that it's a no-no i mean there's a lot to learn as far as the intelligent use of credit however convicted felon with three thousand dollars to his name established a credit score i don't know who comes up with the factors that make you a reliable consumer. However, a felon with $3,000 to his name went from a non-existent credit score to a 700 and then controlled a $165,000 asset that put money in my pocket every month. So I understand what Dave Ramsey preaches and I agree with maybe the freedom of not having a mortgage payment, but when your tenants are paying your mortgage and you have an appreciating asset that is paid, then debt is not the evil thing that he makes it out to be. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. 
making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with the available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. One of my favorite strategies when investing in real estate without a lot of money is to utilize a seller credit. And you mentioned before that you've used one yourself, but I don't think it's something that's taught too often. And I think it should be talked about more. So walk us through what a seller credit is, how it works and exactly how you utilized it and how you plan on utilizing it in the future. So a seller credit is pretty much when you get into a contract or you know offer to purchase agreement with somebody you agree on a price so for sake of math we'll just say the property is a hundred thousand and you have the appraisal and the appraisal comes in higher than that hundred thousand 
you know, as the negotiation goes on and underwriting gets involved and, you know, you get cash to close amounts, you're able to reposition the purchase price of the loan in order to absorb some of that cash on hand cost. I believe it is 6% for government loans, 3% for occupied loans, and 2% of the purchase price for investment properties. So you're able to redraft the offer to purchase with the seller. And instead of 100,000 purchase price, you can renegotiate to 103 with 3,000 kicked back to you at closing. So the seller gets his bottom line, 100,000 that was formerly agreed upon, but it's renegotiated to the point where at closing, you get a $3,000 credit to come to the table for cash to close. I mean, it's very beneficial, especially for somebody like me who has to wait for the needle to move and I have enough funds for my next deal because I pretty much deplete everything besides safety measures that I have in order to close on my next one. I get kind of itchy and want to put my money to work. So when I'm coming with you know small amounts for cash to close to make a deal happen, it's very, very beneficial. I would investigate in every deal you're in if you would be able to utilize it. Because I've used it, I think, on three separate properties now. And my lender is actually the one that kind of keyed me into it. I told him, I said, hey, I'm, I'm getting pretty tight here. All this cash to close is trying not to spend anything I have, but closings two weeks from now. And he said, oh, well, don't worry about it. We'll just, uh, I'll talk to your realtor and see if we can get some seller concessions for you and take some of this burden off of you. And sure enough, he put me onto it and I've done it ever since. So very fortunate. And I think people should use it. I think I've done it in every single one of my real estate deals or, or pretty close to it. I think I've done it in eight or nine different properties. Yeah. There's so many ways to explore the avenue. I mean, people do it for a roof credit or something that the seller isn't really keen on fixing. There's so many moving parts to closing a real estate transaction that in order to make the deal happen, people will kind of not bend the rules, but they will go the extra mile and find these loopholes in order to make it happen. I mean, nobody wants to have a house under contract for 45 days for it to fall out at the last minute because of a few thousand dollars that are short at the closing table. So I'm glad that they exist and I utilize them and seller credits are, are awesome. I mean, the reality is if you have a house under contract for $100,000 and you offer 105 and ask for a $5,000 seller credit, the seller's still netting $100,000. So it's the same as if you offered 100000 and just didn't ask for a seller credit. So as long as the appraisal can support the little bit higher amount that you're offering, then there's really no downside for the seller and it helps you cover closing costs. You're financing it, but you're, you're financing the closing costs and you get to come in for less cash out of pocket. Absolutely. I mean, when you have done them, do you do it right from the get-go, from the first offer you make, you include the, the seller concessions? Yeah, I have for every single one. But the way that you just said that made me think to myself, like, man, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should just go in with a clean offer and then add it in at the end because I don't know. I just feel like when you you make an offer and and we'll use the same example that I just mentioned, $100,000 purchase price, that's the asking. 
and you say, I'll give you 105, but I want a $5,000 seller credit. It's not complex to us as investors, but to the seller, that might be a little bit complex. And I feel like sometimes maybe that could confuse the seller if they're not like a sophisticated investor. So maybe I would be better off just offering $100,000 and then you know, 30 days in, just be like, oh, by the way, can we just move the purchase price to 105 and I'll get a $5,000 seller credit? You'll still get the same amount and kind of maneuver it that way. Human nature is kind of predictable. And I think I might actually go your route the next time because maybe the seller will see the higher number that you come in at, the 105, and then they'd be, oh, I only really expected 100. Maybe they're more prone to sign them. I don't know. There's pros and cons of both ways. I think maybe my method is just useful for once you already got it under contract and you're trying to squeeze as much juice out of it as you can towards the end there so you can keep that cash on hand. But you know what? I think I might side with your method and just human nature is predictable. They're going to see that 105 as opposed to 100 and they might be more likely to take your offer. Yeah, that is a good point. People do like seeing higher offers. I know I've always come in towards the higher end of the offers if I'm ever in a betting war, just because I am always asking for that seller credit. Even though net, it's about the same, but it does appear on the surface to be a little bit more. Oh yeah. We'll have to uh, try our methods out and see what works. Well, the thing is you can actually submit two offers at the same time. There's no rule that says you can only submit one offer. So you could submit an offer for a hundred say no seller credit. And then you could submit one for 105 with a seller credit if you really want it. I mean, you just ask your realtor to write up two different offers. I don't think there's any issues with that. Yeah, that's something to uh, investigate. Definitely. And I kind of like how you know you said you kind of approach with a higher offer anyway. When there's a multiple offer bidding war situation, if you really break down your make or break, I mean, if the property cash flows, and you're squabbling about, you know, let's just say $2,000 on the surface for a purchase price, break that down over 30 years, 360 payments, and you're going to be amazed at what would stop you from securing the deal. And you would probably kick yourself for not just writing the offer for what will actually get it under contract. Because at this stage in the economy to borrow money at this cheap of an interest rate. I mean, you're squabbling over peanuts. Rents will increase. I mean, you could almost increase the rents right off the get-go and make up that pennies to the dollar that you're squabbling about. So, It's like trying to pick up a penny in front of a steamroller is what people are trying to do. Yeah. I don't know if it's just principle. Like, how dare they? Yeah. <laughs> I tell people all the time that the listing price is pretty much irrelevant. Like, I mean, it gives you a ballpark as to what the seller wants or expects to get, but in reality, it's irrelevant. And a lot of times they have run comps and kind of have an idea of what the market value is, but they could list it. A property could be worth 200,000 and they could list it for 100 if they wanted. People probably won't, but they could, or they could list it for 300,000. I mean, there's no rules as to around what people have to list something for. So just because somebody listed it for something, that doesn't mean that's what it's worth. And that doesn't mean that's what the numbers will work for you. There was a property, I think it was last year or maybe a year before that, where they were asking 500,000 and it was a triplex that I wanted to buy. And I knew the numbers made sense at a lot higher figures for me. So I offered 75,000 over asking. I knew 
that I, even if I got it for $575,000, the numbers were still an absolute home run for me. I said, so the 500,000 purchase price doesn't matter. Like this is such a good deal. What I did was I went in at, I think I went in at like 550 or even 525 with what they call an escalating clause, which says that every time there's an offer over your price, your offer goes up to beat that offer by whatever amount you set. So I set an escalating clause to beat every offer by $500 up to a maximum of 575,000. So ultimately I offered $575,000 on that deal. And because like people thought I was crazy, they're like, why would you pay $75,000 over asking? And I'm like, well, asking is irrelevant to me. I'm still going to make $3,000 a month in cash flow off this deal, even at $575,000 as a purchase price. So yeah, I'm going to do it. Ultimately, I didn't end up getting the deal. I don't, I don't know what offer they went with, but to me, it's just, that was a perfect example of how like the purchase price is what's important, not the asking price. Definitely. And I mean, that goes to show the power of leverage there too. You know, if the bank's willing to do it, you got a deal. I recently read a book called Make Your Bed. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but I really liked how he broke down the 10 lessons he learned from his time in the military. So I'm curious from your life experiences, whether it was your time in the military, prison, or just even other times in your life, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? Discipline shapes your identity and the embracing the suck and doing the hard things in life are going to be your foundation when times get tough and you separate the strong from the weak. I'm familiar with Make Your Bed and it's, yeah, that's a very good book. I, I like Jocko Willink's, you know, Discipline Equals Freedom. That's a very good book. I think that, you know, it's funny too because my childhood lacked discipline and I was searching for it. And I think a lot of young people are searching for it and they get lost and they never find it. Regardless of if my time in prison was a punishment or not, it was a blessing in disguise and it forced me to mature into a confident, disciplined man that took care of himself and shape my identity into the path of, you know, not sacrificing. You know, I lost eight years of my life. I gave away eight years of my life because, you know, I deserved to be in there for the crimes I committed. And I think that's a chip on on my shoulder that, hey, I'll never get those eight years back. So I need to make the most out of every day that I'm given. And discipline is the foundation for that. So yeah, I definitely agree with the military's installation of discipline. Do you think discipline's a skill? Well, not like a natural ordained skill. I think it's something that can be developed. But so yes, I guess discipline is a skill, but it just takes development. I think that anybody is capable of it. It just takes the sacrifice and uh, dedication of doing it. I mean, I'm very very disciplined with the morning routine. I don't know if you're familiar with Hell Elrod's Miracle Morning. So I do a miracle morning type morning routine. Right when you wake up, I think silence is golden. I think you need to have a lot of time to collect your thoughts. I've been getting into uh, Wim Hof breath work recently, and I find that that actually puts me in a... It's hard to describe the state. I think you have to do it. You'll... Uh, agree or I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. I'm familiar with it, but I haven't tried it yet. 
I mean, just go on YouTube. It'll take 11 minutes of your time. And I think it's very beneficial, at least so you get to the point where your mind is clear so you can reward yourself with that time and silence. You'll have to give 75 hard a chance. Yeah, I saw. Wow, what a progress you made. I mean, you were pretty ripped from the get-go, though. So, I mean, you know, somebody, even when you were at day zero, people kind of strive for that. So, I'm for it, though. Maybe I'll have to have you hold me accountable. Absolutely. I mean, I did have a good physical transformation, and you're right. I did start from a pretty good spot, but the reality of it is more the mental piece. The discipline that I learned from it was I joke with people. I say, I wish I could take a picture of the transformation of my discipline or my brain rather than my body, because I don't really care too, too much about the physical appearance side of it as much as I do the, the mental and discipline that I gained from it. That was tenfold of what the physical transformation was. And I completely agree. I think discipline, I don't know if it's a skill or not, but if it is a skill, I think it is the number one most important skill out of anything is if you have discipline, I think you can do anything. Definitely. Even as far as learning the ins and outs of real estate, it all came down to discipline. I could listen to stand-up comedy podcasts and enjoy, you know, use it as a form of entertainment. But instead, I have the discipline to use that time to learn a new skill that will benefit my life. I think reading books, I've come to find out when I've, you know, told people to read this book, I get kind of met with shock. Like, read a book, you know. It just takes discipline to be the person that focuses on development. And that's one thing for me, like peak human optimization is, I'm just fascinated by it. Like I'll find myself for hours at night when I should be having downtime on researching supplements, and you know, the things that ultra successful people have done to get where they're at. And I'm just fascinated. That's why I love your podcast and the network you're part of. I mean, we study billionaires. I think that's the greatest title you can have because who doesn't want to know the footsteps they took? And I think that's one thing too, that people just find somebody that's doing something that you strive to do or that you admire about them and just copy them. I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just do what they did and you'll get to where you want to be. This is for you, Jason, but for anybody listening too, if you're enjoying this part of the conversation about kind of human optimization, discipline, that kind of stuff, I highly recommend you go check out this episode of a podcast called My First Million. It's the guest on the episode I'm thinking of is Rob Deerdick, the skateboarder. And you don't really think of Rob Deerdick like when you if you know who he is, you know him as like fantasy factory and ridiculousness and a skateboarder and you don't really think of him as being this like super disciplined human optimized machine. But this is like one of the best podcast episodes I've ever listened to. And he is like the epitome of human optimization. And yeah, I highly recommend you, Jason, and everybody listening goes to check out that episode. It's it's really, really good. I'm excited. I'm not familiar with it. So you've given me something. I have homework today that is, you know, homework for me is something I look forward to. So comes along with discipline. I'm looking forward to that. I'll have to check that out. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, Jason, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. So what question do you have for me? When is your next house hack? I think I saw on social media, is, is it a townhouse? I think you had 
at least an ion. I don't know if you're going to, it was a very nice, looked like a, a perfect scenario for a house hack. Yeah. So I did post that on Instagram a couple of days ago. I did make an offer on it. I did offer a seller credit and I did go over a little over asking because it seemed to be a really, really good deal. It is a townhouse style duplex where, which just means the two units are side by side. Same, essentially what I live in now. I live in a duplex with townhouse style units next to each other. And this was essentially the same thing. But what I really liked about this property was two things. One, it had four and a half acres in a really nice town, like a really, really nice town next to the town that I grew up in. And so the numbers on the house hack were great. They made a lot of sense as a house hack. They were great as a rental when I moved out. So that was a win. And then the four and a half acres I had two plans with. I was probably going to build a small motocross track so I could ride my dirt bikes on the four and a half acres, have some fun with it. But then what I wanted to do was subdivide that four and a half acres. I'd keep two and a half for my own. And then I'd subdivide two one acre lots, try to build houses on those and then sell them. And I mean, that alone could lead to a significant profit. Uh, We're still waiting to hear back on a decision from the seller for whether or not they're going to accept my offer. I don't know if they will. You know, as with real estate, you get to make a lot of offers and sometimes you get told no. So I don't, I don't know if I'll get that one, but if I don't end up getting that one, then a house hack, a new house hack will be in my future in the next probably three or six months or so. Well, absolutely. Good luck with that. And along with that, I have a follow-up question for you. When is your book due to be released? Because I'm definitely looking forward to it and I think that it will change a lot of lives. So I, I'm very optimistic that gets the press it deserves. So pretty soon. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It should be coming out late summer or early fall and I'll be sure to send you a copy and anybody that's interested, reach out to me and we'll see what we can do. Awesome. I I look forward to it. Where can the audience go, Jason, to connect with you, find you on the internet, just learn about what you're doing? I have a website. It's feedofffear.com. That's kind of in its baby step stages here. After talking, I'm in a mastermind group and people have reached out and want to know how I did what I did. So I created a platform for that. It's feedofffear.com. And I I've done some writing, some blog article writing. I have that on there. There's, I'm not trying to sell anything. I just have a landing page for people to reach out to me so I can communicate with them. I got all my information to do what I've done for free. And I think that there's a lot of people that will try to sell you things that you don't need. And, uh, I don't want to say fake gurus or anything like that, but I just want to be a landing page where people can get in touch with me. And if I can help in any way, that's my form of giving back. I encourage people to reach out to me, email me, Jason Peterson at feedofffear.com. And I will answer every email and try to help out the best I can. And for me, that's more fulfilling than any amount of money in the world that People will take the time out of their day to contact me. It's the greatest form of, I don't know, appreciation for me as a person. Because to be where I came from and to where I'm at today, it's very uh, humbling and I'm very grateful. I've heard from past guests that our audience reaches out uh, quite a bit. Quite a few people will reach out. So I, I hope 
And I encourage everybody that's interested in, in connecting with Jason takes advantage of his opportunity to reach out. There's not a lot of guests that are willing to answer, take their time out of their day to answer your emails and help you out with your questions. So if you have anything, be sure to shoot it his way. I'll put Jason's resources, his email, Instagram, website, everything in the show notes for you guys that are interested in checking it out. Jason, thanks so much for joining me. I had a great time. I did too. Thank you so much. I look forward to your book and uh, the Rob Deerdeck podcast that I'm about to delve into right now. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.